Well, good morning again. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here at Sycamore. For our spring sermon series, we're discussing and looking at the scripture in the Old Testament, a strong Old Testament women. And the first one we're looking at is Esther. This morning we're going to be in Esther chapter 2. And uh, as I did last week, instead of having you stand up and read this very long section of narrative, I'm going to read it in sections um, throughout the sermon. So if you would, would you please pray with me as we go to God's word. You know, gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in speech. Thank you for showing us your will, not leaving us to guess what is good and what you require of us. Father, we pray, especially as we come to a, a book that doesn't mention you, where no one prays, where no one prophesies, where there's no authoritative word from you in difficult situations. We pray that you would show yourself to us in this text. We, say, we pray you would help us to see the Lord Jesus elevated in your gospel love. We pray, Lord, that as we live in a time when we don't hear from you outside of your scriptures, we don't often know what to do. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to find ourselves in this text and to be comforted by your grace and guidance. We pray all this, Father, by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to begin this morning, I want to kind of get us in the mindset of what we're talking about with Esther and with the idea of empire, if you were here last week. And it is this. I want to show you a picture real quick. I want to think about social media for a second. You know, Facebook, Instagram, all those things, social media. So I have a picture here I want to show you to help us get it in that mindset. So here it is. Uh, Usually you, you never want to have to explain a cartoon, but I'm going to walk through it real quick. So you've got two farm animals here. And one farm animal says, man, isn't it great that we have to pay nothing for the barn? And the other one says, yeah, and the food is free too. And it says this, Facebook and you, if you're not paying for it, you're not the customer. You're the product being sold. And I put that up there because that's what social media is. You are the product for social media. You are not their customers. Their customers are buying your attention. They're buying your eyeballs. They're buying, they pay fractions of cents for fractions of second of screen time. And I'm telling you this because social media treats people exactly like this concept of empire treats people as products. And we treat social media like we treat empire. We waver between this necessary evil and this really enjoyable, good, time-wasting thing that makes us laugh. Oh, I hate it. I got got stuff. We do that, don't we, with social media? And we do that with empire as well. So Esther is a book about living faithfully in empire, an empire that has this attractive, predatory culture that wants to suck us in and change us and change our way of doing things, change our lifestyle. Now, when I say the word empire, I want to be very clear. I'm not talking politics I'm not talking about, well, now this party's in power. There, no, no. I'm talking about bef- behind politics, the pop culture, the regular culture, the social pressure you feel in various situations. That's empire. And it has a purpose. It's predatory, and it wants to change you. The way America works today, the way Western culture works today, it works like an empire. There's cultural pressures on the left and right that make living a vibrant faith in Jesus difficult. They want to suppress that. 
And we need to resist. So when you see this graphic, again, resist on the front, a lot of times it triggers people. I'm not talking about go and do something bad. I'm talking about in your heart resisting these pressures that are there that we need to be aware of. And like Esther, we have no direct verbal word from God outside of the scriptures, just like her and her people. We have God's faithfulness in the past we can look to and and believe, and so too did she and her people. And just like we struggle with daily faithfulness in an empire that gives us a pretty good life, so too did Esther and her people. So this book, as I said last week, we probably have more in common with the people in the book of Esther than we do any other place in scriptures. There's an immediate connection here. So our theme for today is this, where we're going to try to wrap everything up in, is this. Empire treats us as a product, but God loves us as a family. Now, as we see here in Esther 2, the empire wants to consume us. I'm going to do something a little different for the boys and girls, for the kids today. I, I, I don't have the talent. I'm not, I'm not a linguist. I couldn't rewrite the whole book of Esther for the kids. I'm sorry. It was just taking way too much time and not been good. But what I want to do today in Esther 2, because it's going to be kind of some difficult subject matter at, some po- at one point, is I want to do this metaphor, boys and girls. We're going to walk through a recipe for you guys at the same time that we walk through Esther 2 for everybody else. So boys and girls, to get us started, I want to throw a picture up here for you and ask you to tell me what this is, okay? Anybody anybody recognize what that is? You can go ahead and say it. Anybody know? What is that? It's jam, jelly, homemade jelly, right? The best stuff around. I, I, I don't know who the little, by the way, elves are, but throughout the last month, there have been piles of homemade jelly left in the church office for the staff. It's from various people I know, so Thank you from all of us. Our waistlines, thank you as well. Um, So jelly. We're going to talk about jelly, boys and girls, because here's the deal. We live in a world, what Pastor Sean is calling empire, that wants to turn us into jelly. So we're going to pretend that's true and see how empire tries to cook us, okay? So first off, let's start out verses 1 through 4 of Esther 2. This is God's word. After these things... When the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Okay, so it's been three years since the end of chapter 1. There's this three-year gap here. I love how verse 1 kind of just blandly says, well, after these things. Well, after these things is actually a lot of stuff. For the glory of the Persian Empire, Xerxes, and also to kind of fix what his dad couldn't do, Xerxes assembled the largest army the world had ever seen to that point. And even today, there are very few armies that surpass it. Different historical sources tell us it was 200,000 strong. And he takes that thing west to go and invade and conquer the thinky boy philosophers of Greece. But there was a big problem, and it's in this picture right here. He didn't run into thinky boy philosophers, he ran into warriors. This is from the movie 300, which is a comic book description of an actual historical event. 
the last stand of the 300 Spartans. After that, there was the Battle of Thermopylae, then there was the Battle of Salamis, and there was the whole war. And at every stage, Persia got whooped, kicked out of Greece, and he had to go home with his proverbial tail between his legs. Credibility is gone. Treasury is empty. Xerxes is isolated. He's depressed. He's angry at his loss of power. And Persia is basically a superpower in name only at this point. So what do they do? They say, hey, I know. Let's take all the might of the Persian Empire. And we couldn't conquer Greece, but we can conquer some women. So to cheer up Xerxes and to kind of reassert their power, Persia launches The Bachelor. Now, you know this show, maybe. I'm, I'm going to describe it without comment. Gather a bunch of women, have them fight, I mean, compete. At the end of each episode, only if they have more women than they have roses, and only those with roses get to stay, and ultimately it dwindles down to one who gets that final rose, and maybe they'll fall in love and live happily ever after. So again, I describe it. No comment, of course. Let a bunch of young, pretty things be gathered for Xerxes. And this idea comes from young men. And very often in the Bible, when you see something coming from young men, it's terrible. Sorry, guys, it's true. The big split in Israel was caused by young men. And there's other places too. See, and that's a big difference right there between the worldview of Scripture and the worldview of empire. Our time, empire, the cultural pressure, worships youth. And when's the last time you saw a product advertised? This will make you look older and more experienced. Right? This will make you feel like 60. Right? And some of you are like, can I, can I do that, please? <laughs> I know. See, we worship youth and we disdain those who are more experienced. And in the Bible, it's the exact opposite. Over and over again, the Bible is like, it's not youth where it's at. It is it is we're older and more experienced. The word presbyterian comes from the Greek word for old men. Like we want older people. Did you know that? Yeah, presbyteros is old men. That's what we want running the church. See, and one of the best ways that we can display the gospel, and that we can resist this thing called empire, is that we self-consciously want to be a multi-generational church that appreciates our differences and actually loves each other. That's Empire doesn't like that. Empire wants to stratify. Empire doesn't value people like that. Empire does it for itself. And you can see how much empire doesn't value people. In verse 3, you look, there's words there like gather, custody, in charge. These aren't the words of freedom and flourishing. These young women are harvested for Xerxes' pleasure. Okay, boys and girls, so if we pretend that empire wants to make us jelly... The first thing we have to do to make jelly is we got to go to the bush or to the field and we got to pick some fruit, right? We got to find the good ones, leave the bad ones, and we got to gather. That's called harvesting. We got to get all this fruit together. And that's how Persia saw its people as fruit to be harvested. And so this idea is let's go harvest what we own, what is ours, and get the best of the best so we can make it into something we can consume. Now, this chapter focuses on women, but to be historically accurate, I have to tell you, this is not about sexism. This is about empire-owning people. So they harvested these women, but Persia ran its government with a bureaucracy, like most governments, and they populated this bureaucracy with eunuchs. 
Now, last week we discussed eunuchs. We looked at these. They were closer to the king kind of security guards. Those, not to get too technical here or uncomfortable, those are post-pubescent men who then chose that lifestyle. And because they were post-pubescent, they had muscle mass. They were security guards, the upper-level military trusted. If you wanted people, you didn't need muscle mass, you didn't need strength, you didn't need military prowess, you just needed their brains and to be trustworthy, you would gather them from prepubescent boys. And the Greek historian Herodotus tells us that Persia harvested 500 young boys a year, forcibly altered them into eunuchs, and populated their bureaucracy with them. See, this is about empire-owning people. See, in the ancient Near East, you had to remember how significant this was. Your life had value only if you had descendants. Significance, societal worth, feeling like your life mattered was because you had children who then would have children and your name would continue on. By forcing young women into this harem, and once they were with the emperor, he owned them. They could never be with anybody else. And by forcing these boys to give up the ability to have children, Empire tells everyone, no, 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 no. We are where you get significance and value. Serving us is what matters in life, not this. Cast off your traditional old world values and see the new progressive way of empire. This is what matters. See, empire wants us to see it as ultimate so it can harvest us for its consumption. What does that actually look like today in 2021? Well, empire, culture, the world system, whatever you want to call it, what it wants to do, it wants you to work to seek its glory. It wants you to see your highest end as its glory. And we as a church, we fall into that trap when we strive for empire's power to bring about change rather than resting in the strength of God who says that my power comes through weakness, especially the weakness of the cross of Christ. We have to resist that temptation, and it's a big one, or empire will harvest us. Let's see our next section now, verses 5 through 14. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. 
Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulation for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in charge of Shaazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. So we meet Mordecai in this section. Mordecai is part of the upper classes of Jerusalem. His family was who were taken away to Babylon and held there. And then once Persia came in and conquered Babylon and set them free, he and his family stayed. And here's the thing to remember about him. He is a second or third generation captive. Most likely, in fact, probably, he has never seen Jerusalem. He's never seen the temple. He's never experienced all that Old Testament worship stuff that had so much to do with the temple. And instead, he's in this weird exile religion that can't do those things. They're trying to find themselves. All he knows is life as an exile. So again, just real quick, in case you guys didn't watch that video I sent, there's a video, by the way, six minutes, gives you the historical background. Please watch that if you haven't watched that yet. In uh, 597 B.C., Babylon came, conquered Jerusalem, burned the temple to the ground, broke the city walls, just destroyed the city, took away the upper classes, all the leaders, left the uh, people leaderless behind and took them all to Babylon to try to make them Babylonians. Persia, a generation later, conquered Babylon and said, no, we're not going to do that and set everybody free. You guys go live where you want to live. In fact, if you want to go home, we'll, we'll even pay to rebuild your temple for you. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah cover that happening Some people stayed in Persia and became good Persian citizens. And the Bible doesn't say that was wrong of them. There's nothing wrong with that. So we're 120 years later, and here's Mordecai. He's raising his cousin as a daughter. Verse 7 tells us she is beautiful of figure and lovely to look at. Or as empire would say, jackpot. This is what empire says is valuable. Here is the, she's in shape, she's pretty, and here is the next young Hollywood starlet who's going to play alongside the much older, more out of shape male actor for some reason. She's definitely going to be harvested. Look with me at verse 8 to make sure we don't miss what's going on here. Look at these phrases here. It says, many young women were gathered. Esther also was taken and put into custody. All those things mean what you think it does. She's collected. She's captured. She's secured. Empire asserted its power, and resistance was futile. Now, I know. I have three daughters, so my dear freedom-loving Americans, I know you're thinking, you read verse 8, you're like, uh uh-uh. But concepts such as human dignity, concepts such as women's rights, all those concepts are Christian concepts that were brought in to dying Roman culture, and from that detritus rose Western culture. All the good stuff that we like about human ethics and decency and stuff is from Christianity. And that's not just pastorally hyperbole. Many philosophers and historians say this. The most recent one, easiest to read, is a book called Dominion by Tom Holland, who's not a Christian, who basically makes the case that everything you like about Western culture came from Christianity. So we're like, thanks, Tom. We know. We appreciate the, appreciate the shout-out. All those things we live in were unheard of back then, not even on their mindset. Esther, the rest of the women, everybody around her 
were property. Concepts of choice, concepts of consent, they just didn't exist. Wouldn't have even crossed their mind. In fact, instead of outrage or resistance, we need to unplug ourselves from a culture that has, you know, entertainment and Walmart supercenters and recognize that food security and leisure time never existed except for the upper, 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 upper crust of human people at this point in Esther. Life was hard. There was no such thing as food security. So for most commoner girls, they're like, hold up a minute. I get three squares a day. I get to live in a pampered life of luxury for free for the rest of my life. I have a chance to be be queen, and all it takes is i got to give up one night with the most powerful man in the world. Um, where do I sign? They're like, cha-ching, I won the lottery. They would want to do this. People were lighting up, please pick me. This would be like American Idol lines out front. People cheering, pick me, pick me. The text doesn't indicate that Esther was that way, but it doesn't indicate she was particularly resistant either. The text is silent on these issues. She's harvested. She's taken. Verse 9 tells us she immediately receives accolades. She immediately finds favor. And immediately we ask, well, is she an eager compromiser at this point? Or is she in resolved despair at where God has put her? We don't know. And if you're sure you know the answer, you are bringing that to the text. You're not bringing it out of the text, so be careful. This text is written to people like us who are in a complicated life where God doesn't speak directly to us verbally. He speaks in a book in the past. Where they may say, God, what do I do here? And you just don't know. See, life in empire is not simple. It's complex. And the Old Testament writer here honors a real life of faith with these ambiguities. I mean, like verse 10, Mordecai tells her, keep your family and your faith secret. Is he being wise? Is there like rampant anti-Semitism or xenophobia going through the empire? We don't know. Or is he simply just lacking faith and afraid? We don't know. How easy is it for you to tell the difference in your life when you're faced with that? Yeah, me too. See, whether or not they compromised, the real question is, was God able to use them to bring about his purposes? Is he able to use you when you don't know what to do? So, boys and girls, let's go back to you. We've been talking about some philosophy and history and stuff. So, if you want to make jelly, you pick the fruit, what's the next step? I know. You cook it. We've got a picture here. What do you do? You mush it all up. You put it in a big pot. You turn the heat up and you make it bubble. You add in some sugar. You add in some spices. And you get it all bubbly and gooey and you cook it, right? That's actually, boys and girls, what Persia did to the women. I'm serious. It cooked them. The text here literally says they were polished for six months with oil, and then they were fumigated is the word for this next six months. And we actually have historical evidence of this. We've, there's drawings from, on, uh, we've seen they had this big thing. Think of a bed sheet with one little hole at the top. They would put a little pile of burning incense, and they would put two or three women around it, and they would put this bed sheet over them, and they had to sit in it, coughing, barely able to breathe for who knows how long per day, but the text says for six months. So for six months, they were polished up, and they were cooked for an entire year. 
These girls are transformed from what they were to what empire demands they be. For some, it was awful. For others, I, I can imagine, well, that's what it takes to climb the ladder and be successful in my career. Okay. And verse 12 to 14 show us the power, the ridiculous power of empire, because all of this stuff was actually law. Some bureaucrat somewhere had written the regulations on how to do this. Because empire gets to tell you what to do. Empire's the authority. Empire rules your life. All this stuff, empire demands just so you can be worthy of your one night with our king. See, pain and suffering seem to be the prerequisite for acceptance and beauty in empire. And we all know this. I know this personally. I mean, I'm there at 6 a.m. at the YMCA most mornings trying to get beautiful by empire standards. It's, it's working. God's image right here. Okay. So. Okay, I want you to laugh because I'm about to get really dark. There's a dark side to this. Remember Elizabeth Smart? Remember years ago, 2002, 14-year-old girl kidnapped, abducted for almost a year before she was found again? During that time, it, fa- it turns out that she was in public with her captors on many occasions, very close to where she actually lived. And there were opportunities for her to escape. In fact, there was one instance where a librarian thought something weird was going on, so she called the police, and an actual police investigator sat her and her two captives down and was talking because he could smell something was wrong, and she didn't say anything. It was very early on. She could have cut her captivity in half. But see, what had happened is through physical abuse, psychological abuse, what sociologists call your agency, like you're, you're being in control of yourself, she had been worn down where she gave up her agency. Her personhood left her and she just saw herself as under this man's control, part of him, not really her own person. And after 12 months of this torture, and they are prisoners. I mean, it's a padded prison with that gold bars, and good food, but it's a prison. These girls would have no agency. They would barely think of themselves as people. They would see themselves as objects for Xerxes. They're completely assimilated, completely processed by empire at this point. And then what makes it worse is in verse 14, after their night with the king, apparently empire invents the walk of shame and says, oh, no, no, you don't get to go back here. You've had your night. You're no longer brand new. You have to go to the used car lot now. You go to this one because you're secondhand. You're not as good as you used to be unless he likes you. Then you are. If not, think about what you did to not be queen. It's like Hotel California, right? They could check out. They could never leave. Again, it's outrageous to us in a Me Too era, which is good. You should be outraged. Let's unplug and try to go back to the ancient Near East and see how really significant this is. At that time, a woman's, again, I'm going to say something that is from an ancient culture. Pastor Sean doesn't believe this. Sycamore doesn't believe this on internet people, okay? A woman's virginity was seen as a commodity of value. It was a thing. And it was owned not by her. It was owned by her father. Her father would give this thing of value to her husband as part of the bride price. It was one of the reasons it was so protected. It was seen as something physical and commodity. This, is, this was a value here. 
This whole harvesting scheme then is empire looking at that practice and claiming, actually, this thing from parents and girls and husbands, that's not what's most valuable. We are what's most valuable, so we're just going to take that. And it forced families to redefine traditional values, such as marriage and morality, to be what empire says they are. And there was this constant pressure to redefine those things. Does this sound slightly familiar? That's assimilation. Esther is abducted and imprisoned into that system. And let's see what happens next now, verses 15 through 18. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who, was, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth, tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Okay, boys and girls, so empire wants to make us jelly. We've seen how it picks the fruit. We've seen how it cooks it up. Now, once you have the jelly, what do you do? This is the best part. What do you do? You're right. Just a picture here, right? You get yourself a biscuit and you enjoy that jelly and it's awesome. But let me ask you a silly question, boys and girls. The last time you had some really good jelly, did you stop and go, um, jelly, do you mind if I eat you? Are, are you okay with this? Okay, okay if, you, if you did that, um, let your parents know. But that's silly, right? We, we would never do that. We don't care because the jelly is an object. It's a product. We have value. It's not a person. It's, not a, it's just for us. It exists for us. And that's exactly how Persia saw these women. It's exactly what happened to poor Esther here. Empire didn't care. She was harvested. She was processed, and she's ready, and now they are going to consume her, regardless of her feelings about it. Notice how good the literature is here, how the details start getting added in in verses 15 and 16. It forces you to slow down. It's like the camera is zooming in to make you see something very significant is coming with all these details in a row. She has been abducted. She's been incarcerated, subjected to a year of psychological abuse, and now the Jewish girl spends her night with the king. I know many of you want me to make it go away at this point. Explain it away. Let's bring out the felt board and show how it's such a lovely little Sunday school story. Especially if you insist on reading Esther and the rest of the Old Testament as examples to follow. You know what I mean, right? The Bible has good people and bad people. Try really hard to be like the good people. That's not the Bible. The Bible is you're all bad people until the really one good person comes, Jesus. And when you place your faith and trust in him, he makes you part of the good people. So when we get to things like this, we have to follow the text into uncomfortable places. What Esther puts before us in verse 16 is a very pampered, very legal rape. 
that yuck factor, that angry, maybe you have at me for daring to even say the word, the writer wants you to feel that. The writer wants you to be outraged, disgusted, and upset so that in your mind you follow a logical process that says, why was she forced into this night? Well, because she was taken to the harem. Well, why was she taken? Well, because she was in empire's power. Why was she in empire's power? Because her grandparents were in exile. Well, why were they in exile? Because their grandparents sinned greatly against God, wallowed in unfaithfulness, and brought about his promised judgment. Esther's paying their bill. Even in the promised land, the pressure to assimilate to the culture around it, the culture of the ungodly was so strong that the entire nation fell away from faithfulness and God did what he said he would do. And now their great-great-grandchildren are living under the power of Persia, paying for their unfaithfulness. See, sins of the past can come and bite the present, can't they? I mean, I'm just going to put cards on the table Some of you may not think it's a big deal and what's wrong with our wimpy pastor, but I have been on the verge of tears several times in the last couple weeks with the events happening in D.C. If I stop and think about it, I start to tear up. I remember on September 12th in Colorado Springs, what, 20 years ago at this point, holding my then barely one-year-old daughter, crying at a picture of missile launchers outside the White House, that that's the culture and the world she's going to grow up in. And this past week, seeing pictures of 20,000 soldiers sleeping around the Capitol, I just wept. Maybe I'm a wimp, I don't know, but I don't want my country to have to have 20,000 troops in it for just a change of presidency. I hope you don't either. And I don't care who won, who lost, I'm not t- I don't care the reasons, I don't care. I don't want to see that. You know, the fragility of our democracy has been laid bare right now. It's not far-fetched to ask the question, are we under the judgment of God? Because this just seems really intense. And if we are, could it be, especially on this Right to Life Sunday, that we are under such judgment because the shedding of millions upon millions upon millions of innocent blood through a legalized abortion? I don't know. The text is silent. I don't have the right to say, thus says the Lord. Could it be? Perhaps we, like Esther, are put into difficult positions because of the sins of our predecessors. But here's the good news. Esther is not disqualified from God's grace because of what she did, what her ancestors did, or what happened to her. And neither are you. Esther's circumstances are not too much for God, and neither are yours. And I don't want to make this too metaphorical. I just want to address directly, because I know some people need to hear this. Sexual sin, whether done by you, or if you've suffered sexual sin from somebody else, I'm so sorry. But hear this, it leaves you feeling shame. It leaves you feeling like, yeah, I belong in that second-hand used car lot area to waller in my shame and recognize that I'm not as good as I used to be. I'm damaged goods. But just as Xerxes does for Esther, King Jesus does for us in the gospel. He comes, he loves us, he relieves us of our shame immediately. He just rips it off us like a cover and says, no, that does not cover you anymore. He takes it away. He puts the crown of approval on our heads in the gospel. And then he adopts us into God's family. And we have the approval of our heavenly father in Jesus. Our shame is taken away by the work of the king. And we get a glimpse of that in verse 17 of grace and favor. This is beyond physical attraction and satisfaction. 
Much to the reader's surprise, Xerxes loves Esther. He offers her the rose. She wins the bachelor. She may well be a pawn of pagan power, but grace doesn't stop flowing. She finds grace and favor. The Jewish girl is made queen of Persia. And to celebrate, he throws a lavish party, and we find out that apparently Xerxes leans Republican because, praise God, he cuts taxes. How great is that, right? And when empire does that, it helps us to think, it tricks us, it pulls us in and says, yeah, when things go well for the empire, we are gracious and kind and we make your life easier too. And we start to think, oh, it's not so bad here. Empire's okay. Until it isn't, which is where our text ends, verses 19 through 23. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Fine and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, The men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So the story jumps back to Mordecai. Just as we would say a ruling from the bench to indicate a judge, so too sitting at the king's gate means he was a bureaucrat. He was upper level, not a eunuch. He was in charge of something. So he holds office in the palace. Apparently he's in the break room getting coffee, and he hears two other guys of Xerxes' security team talking about how they're going to take him out. They're mad. Assassination plot. So he pulls out his phone, he texts Esther real quick, says, hey, tell Xerxes. It says, literally, they want to choke him. They're that mad, whatever's happened here. So boys and girls, back to you. These guys are no good at being jelly, is what's happening. They don't want to be jelly. They're spoiled jelly. You, open the, you pop open the lid, and there's full of mold and nasty gook in there. So two choices when that happens. you got your nice, fresh, piping hot biscuit. The mutter, butter's just melted enough. It's time for the jelly. You pop it open, there's mold and nasty Two choices. Do you scrape off the top layer and then dig in, or do you go, uh, no, thank you? Okay, it's the second one. Okay, the first one will kill you. All right, so, all right, you throw it away if it's spoiled rotten, right? And that's what Empire does here. These were harvested, processed, and deployed eunuchs, and it says, oh, you're spoiled, no good, and just cuts them off, executes them immediately. It investigates and executes. And Mordecai, understanding empire make sure that this is done by esther in his name so that they get credit for it he knows how the game works again is he a pawn in the system is he being faithful and wise the text doesn't say but it does remind us that empire treats us like a product but god treats us as family see and what that means for all of us is that unlike our culture god doesn't want us to be jelly he doesn't want to smear us on a biscuit and eat us He wants us to be his kids who crawl up and sit in his lap. That's the difference. So the sins of her fathers and grandfathers had left Esther in a position to be taken to the harem, to be an object of empire's consumption. But God was there, blessing her with favor all along the way, putting her in a position that we'll see later to do his will to save all his people, loving her through this tough situation. And so too, dear flock, as we live in a more and more hostile culture, 
Hostile, again, not because of politics. It will cost us more and more to be faithful. We may be reaping the judgment from others right now, but God is with us, putting us in positions to do his will, loving us through these tough situations. So as I said last week, Esther helps us understand our culture, but cultural critique is not the main point of the book. Cultural, none of that is the main purpose of any book of the Bible. Jesus himself in Luke chapter 24 said, the entire Bible is about me. Me, Jesus, not me. So whenever we come to a book of the Bible, we believe him and we see, okay, how has Jesus been put into this text? And so there's a couple things that stand out to me as we wrap up. Xerxes and empire say, be good looking, be young and available, be the best, be property, cut off your family relations, sacrifice your dreams, suffer to be made good enough for me. And if you can perform well enough to please me, I will love you and give you everything. Xerxes does nothing. The potential bride does everything. But the gospel comes and says, no, you are broken already. You need help right now. You're not attractive. Your evil and your sin have made you repugnant to your creator, actually. So to fix all that, Jesus will suffer to make you good enough. He will love you, not just for one night, but for the rest of your life, because he will go through all the junk so you don't have to, and he will make you family and give you everything you want. Jesus does everything for his bride. See, empire demands that we perform to be valued, and so we exhaust ourselves, desperate to feel significant. But in the gospel, Jesus exhausts himself on the cross to make us valuable. If you're tired of playing Empire's exhausting game, then you resist by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. For some of us, it's it's surprising how this ancient, ancient, almost 3,000-year-old story can be so applicable to us today. Father, we pray that you would give us strength to resist the empire by being faithful to you. We pray you would help us to resist the way the empire says strive for strength. Instead, we would relish the weakness of the cross. We pray, Lord, that you would help those of us who are so shamed to find freedom and acceptance in Jesus. We ask you would do this, Lord, in his great name. Amen.